would you please pronounce your name correctly for me? It's Julie Decker. And what's your current position at the Anchorage Museum? I am the director and CEO of the Anchorage Museum. Okay. So, first of all, how does one become a director and CEO of a museum? I have no idea, but speaking for my <laughs> speaking for myself, I still have no idea. It looks intentional if you read my resume on paper. I have master's degree in arts administration, degrees in art and journalism, and PhD in contemporary art history. So it looks like I was headed on that path, but really I was very curious about what vehicles can we put in service to community to do good things, better things, and became involved with the museum because I accidentally went back to my hometown and realized it was a place where one person can do big things and became very intrigued by the ways we were stuck and all of the opportunities that a place like this has. So So Anchorage is your hometown? I grew up in Anchorage, yeah. Okay. My parents were hippies. They were... (laughs) Wait, wait, actual hippies or like... I think actual hippies. I think they can qualify. It was in late 60s that they were having, starting a family, finishing college. They were both teachers and curious about the world beyond Wisconsin and the Midwest of the United States and took a teaching job on the island of Guam. And then we're probably smoking weed or drinking beer and with friends who showed a slide show, and those were 35 millimeter slides, if anybody remembers those, of a vacation to Alaska. (laughs) And my parents thought that looked pretty cool and took off thinking it would be the next adventure, but it turned out to be the adventure. All right. So then how did you, okay, one thing I would love to know about people sort of like how they got made. So you had hippie parents that ended up in Alaska. Now, were they in Anchorage proper or like somewhere close? Anchorage, yeah. Mm -hmm. How did that turn into you being an arts administrator and all this? So like, how did they, was it them that sort of uh, fostered this interest or was it something outside of your parents? Yeah, I think that one's pretty easy. My father is an artist, continues to make today. So I don't know that I understood my interest in art or even knew that I had one until I got to college and thought, you know, some people take art history classes thinking it'll be easy. I thought it was a different way of thinking and challenging, took a drawing class, thought it was the hardest thing I'd ever done and got me way outside my comfort zone and thought maybe this is what I should do. And then, of course, understanding my father's work as an artist and what that world looks like, thought it was interesting to think about artists needing advocates. And I think more than being an artist myself, I was interested in that role of how can we give voice to this kind of creative practice. Well, and to a certain extent, you've you've stumbled in, as you sort of say it, to a, a very interesting museum. So like you run the Anchorage Museum, which is not just an art museum or, or a science museum, but it, it actually like does a lot of different roles in that region. So give me like a little, you know, spit uh, like a elevator pitch about what the Anchorage Museum is sort of meant to do. As museums go, it's probably fairly young. So is the town of Anchorage. If you look at it from the eyes of white settlers, founded in 1968 by a mayor who thought that any town worth anything needed to have a museum. So credit to him, founded the Anchorage Museum, borrowed collection, tiny building when it started, and then basically with oil dollars kept expanding every decade, pretty much doubling in size. So it became a pretty big cultural institution, but often was a borrower, so imported ideas, imported exhibitions, you know, kind of that idea that Anchorage has nothing, so if we're doing our jobs, we're bringing something else here. Think about Impressionist paintings and other things that really don't have to do with this place, which can be interesting, but it's also can be a fairly provincial way of thinking but also didn't have the expectations that other big museums might have, didn't have that decades-long, hundreds of years of history of expectations from the public. So previous directors before me 
really made it into this community living room idea. It wasn't just about exhibitions. It needed to be public space. And then I grew up in this town sort of frustrated that we were always looking backwards, talking about dog mushing or white history and not really recognizing the huge potential of this place. We're importing architecture, importing everything that really wasn't a good fit for our place and had nothing to do with more aspirational local that I saw. So you had people leaving that, you know, were creative to get other opportunities. You didn't have leaders hearing the pressure to do something else. So I guess I was frustrated. Like, I didn't think our dream should all be about when can we get a Krispy Kreme franchise that... <laughs> I love Krispy Kreme. Maybe we could have bigger aspirations for ourselves and that it really started with this internal narrative that we should build and that then we could export that instead of letting tourists kind of define who we were. Okay, wait, did you ever get a Krispy Kreme? Yeah. Good, good. Do, do, they, make it, do they make it fresh? Yeah. <laughs> But do they make it fresh there with with the conveyor belt and everything where you can get... Yeah, a little paper hat. Yeah. But you can get it fresh off the conveyor belt? Yeah. Oh, God, it's so good. Well, we have that now. So, you know, yes, we are with the world. But, you know, we kind of grew up, and I grew up with this idea that if only, like if only we were like these other places. And as I got older, I thought, oh, shouldn't we be embracing the fact that we're not? So I got off track about the museum. Museum was a community space. I was running nonprofit organizations around art and architecture, really curious about can that help create a different kind of local identity for place? And isn't the fact that millions of people want to come here a sign that we have something to offer? So I started curating art exhibits for the museum, eventually became the chief curator here. And then became very interested in this idea climate change was affecting all of our life ways, that we were bearing witness far before the rest of the world, and that the rest of the world was going to start talking about it, but we weren't, and that the museum had a different role to play rather than importing things. It should really be in service of telling the story of this place. So we're not an art, history, science museum. We're a museum of place. So that means art, history, science, and for me, future literacy are all parts of thinking about our place. And our place is full of really interesting people who have lived in this extreme landscape for thousands, many thousands of years. There is a local knowledge that has relevance to the world today as we think about climate change and immigration and all of the big issues of today. I think Alaska has a story to tell. Okay. Help me out a little bit. I'm going to play the ignorant non-Alaskan, <laughs> you know. And so, so what's the what is like? I guess like life in Anchorage, like in and of itself, because you know, as a, I feel like as a foreigner, but like basically as somebody who's never lived there, I have sort of this romantic idea of it or ways I've seen pictures and movies and stuff. But like your boots on the ground, so like, is it? as cold as we think it is is it as rugged as we think it is or is it rather metropolitan is you know give me a little understanding of the, the lifestyle there these days i would have a different answer for alaska versus anchorage anchorage is the largest city in alaska it's half the population of the state fairly metropolitan fairly challenged infrastructure that was built in an expedient way with a lot of boom and bust dollars. But, you know, for a while, a fairly transient population, people were coming and going for industry, oil, healthcare. So people weren't always digging in and staying and committing to community. And sort of a rough town when I was growing up. I remember prostitutes on the street flagging down our car if my dad was driving, um, some corruption. We had the mafia here in the 70s. Wait, you, wait, what was the mafia doing? You know, money corrupts. There was a lot of money flowing here when the pipeline was built and in the first years and early days. So I grew up thinking, well, of course, thinking I was in a normal place, but 
It wasn't. We all think where we grew up is normal. But wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Okay, the mob. That's fascinating. What was it? They were part of, Was are there casinos there? There are no casinos here, but there was money here. From my understanding, there was probably drugs here in that time. Of course, there's drugs everywhere. Drugs everywhere, but also people with dollars to spend. And they were coming in to work for two weeks at a time with two weeks off. That's a pretty big party when you can have two weeks off. So, you know, I think the mafia is good at seeing opportunity and probably came a short time. Yeah. Sure. So, so prostitution and bars probably then. Yeah. Bars, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. Now, again, I'm going to play this. Uh, I'm going to continually be stupid. I have a little bit of knowledge, but enough just to be dangerous. So when I was a kid, I'm 47. So when I was a kid, People, the natives of that that region were still referred to as Eskimos. I know that's horribly inappropriate. Inuit was then at one point, but now there, I'm sure there's newer vocabulary. What is the appropriate vocabulary so I don't continue to put my foot in my mouth? Well, I'll just make it more complicated for you, which is not a monolithic group of indigenous people in Alaska. There are many, there are two dozen languages spoken here many tribal organizations and groups. So they vary by region. The Yupik and Inupiaq are what we would say are Inuit that cross over into Canada that decades ago were referred to as Eskimo. The people on the land where I sit are the Denina people who often called themselves the invisible people. People didn't understand that there were indigenous people in Anchorage. They thought of it as you know, it started with a tent city in the 1900s with the railroad. Captain Cook came here, looked at the shore and charted it. And for many decades, we used Captain Cook's maps because that wasn't being updated. So uh, this is a very indigenous place. This is indigenous land. The story of European and other white settlers is not a positive one. And I think there's a lot of reconciliation and healing to do. I don't even know where to start with that. I mean, I I studied with and studied Native Americans' uh, issues with the American government, and the American government was horrible to them. Is was the entire sort of situation of the sort of Native Americans to the U.S. government similar to the Native people of Alaska to I guess white settlers? Yes, but also. I mean, you know, we have a history of boarding schools and sexual abuse by priests and disease brought in and people forced to assimilate, land taken. All of those stories are true in Alaska that are true in most places, unfortunately. But also Alaska was really late to statehood. And when oil development began, there was a law called the Alaska Native Claims Settlement Act, which is actually about to mark its 50th anniversary. And the indigenous people here did make the case for that being indigenous land and having rights to oil revenue and land ownership and sovereignty. So in a way, that was very progressive law at its time and did not put indigenous people onto reservations. Today, as we look back, there's giant flaws in the laws and in the thinking, but I think it did put Alaska ahead of the conversation of what that might look like. Okay, wait. So is indigenous people sort of the right term as as a broad stroke that I could use? In Alaska, there are Alaska Native people, if you include all of the groups, which are part of indigenous people of the world. So indigenous is not, is the monolithic term for native people. Yeah, I like trying to talk in broad strokes. It's just much easier. I know you're trying to make me talk more specifically and I'm trying, but I make no guarantees. (laughs) So, okay. One of the things I think about, like, so I know you all carry or carry, I know you all have in your collection a lot of like things that are made by the not indigenous people. You just told me the right term. Alaskan Native Native people. Um, One of the things I wonder about is like uh, preservation of these things. Because me, how like I'm thinking, uh, I don't know, a piece made of wood or a piece made from uh, seal skin. I so I'm probably sounding so like racist by even saying things like that. But like these things, they're they don't necessarily have good preservation. I would imagine things go bad in the cold and the wet 
We do have conservators that specialize in things like furs and skins. We keep things that are especially fragile or susceptible to bugs in freezers. We have things like grass baskets that are protected from light that might make them fade or keep humidity control so they don't dry out and get brittle. So all of that museology around those materials. We also have people that come from all over the world to study some of the materials that are used in these objects like porcupine quills because they're just not seen in other places. But also, I mean, one of the things we try to focus on here, we have a very large Smithsonian collection as part of our exhibitions. You know, we don't want people to think these are dead or dying cultures, that it's only a lens into the past, that, you know, cultures are continuing. There are many Alaska Native people here today, continuing that culture, making very contemporary objects, but also keeping that heritage and those traditions alive through their materials and their methodology. So I think it's a really complex, interesting conversation. And we work with a lot of contemporary artists who want to make sure that conversation continues and that history is seen, but also their activism, their belief system, their knowledge system is still part of what brings us forward. Right. But what I'm talking about, though, is also the the idea that, you know, I'm trying to think like a a Greco-Roman sculpture from thousands of years ago was made of marble and then kept in a reasonably temperate climate kind of thing. And so I'm imagining that in Alaska, we don't have any of that. Yeah. Right. No, it's all, I mean, the materials are associated with the environment. They come from the environment. So it's natural materials. And it is a different challenge to kind of preserve those objects. And we have to have specialists who know how to do that, but also work with makers that still know how to repair a basket or repair a fur parka or think about snowshoes and how you'd repair a traditional pair of snowshoes. So that's really interesting, satisfying work to have people that carry those, keep those traditions alive and work with them to make sure the objects stay alive too. Well, I would imagine a lot of the things from like the long history of the people that were in that region might have been lost over time because a lot, as I said, sort of the weather is not very forgiving for preserving these kinds of things. So like, has a lot been already lost just simply by time or is there actually a pretty good sort of history of things still existing? Well, I mean, Europeans stole a lot of objects, (laughs) took them back to Europe ended up in private collections so there are objects don't beat around the bush how do you really feel about that our national museums there's actually a very large alaskan collection in places like berlin and helsinki finland the british museum has objects from alaska so there is a preservation of objects but also these were not made to be traded or taken. They were objects for to be used in those communities. And some tribal groups still have objects that they hold, which is a lovely place for them to be kept. So, I mean, there is a rich material culture. I think sometimes what gets lost more is the language that surrounds them, the oral history, the storytelling about the patterning or the technique, but also those objects were made to honor the environment, the animals, the spirits. And those are critically important stories that often get lost because they were not written down. Yes, oral tradition is a tough one. But I mean, luckily, these days we can record them or write them down or whatever. Yeah. But what, you brought up that, that people stole stuff and took it to other parts of the world. Are you all seeking repatriation of any of these items? We do facilitate repatriation. There are culture groups in Alaska that have requested objects being repatriated from museums around the world. And we do offer to aid in that process and temporarily care for objects until they can go back home. So yes, we think often that's a very important conversation and part of our responsibility. All right. Now I'm going to sound really stupid here because I like sounding stupid. The When I think of, oh gosh, I'm, what was the word again for <laughs> Alaskan people? Alaska natives. Yeah. Alaskan natives. Thank you. Okay. When I think of Alaskan natives, I think of the the crafts. I think of the the, the baskets, the weavings, the the things made with f- skins and furs and things like this. 
it, are those now at this point sort of seen more as an art form or a craft or is there some blending of the two and like how do you talk about those and and that sort of subtle differentiation between something that could be seen as a craft versus something that could be seen as an art form no, i think we've thrown those divisions out the door here oh okay fair enough that they haven't added a lot of value and we used to categorize our collection that way you know we had an art collection and then a photograph collection and then you know, ethnographic object collection, you know, we did have to challenge ourselves one day to say, what sense does that make? And what is the need to put these things in those buckets? To me, everything's everything. So, you know, there's science because there's tremendous science and technology that went into making many of those objects from clothing that's more rainproof than the Gore-Tex we use today to, you know, the technology of snowshoes was brilliant to the boats that were carved. So I think there's a tremendous knowledge story to tell about living in the environment, adapting to cold weather, the techniques for clothing that kept, that was about survival. So, and then they were decorated. I mean, these are beautiful objects. There was incredible design thinking, is a terrible term, <laughs> that went into them because they knew to value these objects. They were representing their values. So I think, yeah, those categories are problematic because I think these objects hold the story of a culture and the values of a culture, which are is all of those things. It's art and it's history and it's spirituality and it's science about the environment and what you're living with. It's honoring the animal often to indigenous people land, animal, water, spirits, that's all one. It's all part of one system. We're not separate from that. We're not superior to animals. So there's this honoring that you can see in those items too. Not a lot of vegetarians up there, huh? I'm a vegetarian. Are you really? <laughs> yeah, I am. But can you even grow vegetables up there very easily? You know, we can grow enormous vegetables. It's a very short growing season, but because we have 24 hours of daylight, you've just never seen bigger cabbage in your life. I believe that. That makes sense, actually. You know, I mean, not to overcomplicate everything, but I think the, <laughs> the pandemic and climate change makes us realize how dependent we are on imported food here in a place like Anchorage. Everything comes on a barge from another place. We had an earthquake, pretty big earthquake about three years ago and realized, learned from the officials that we only have like a three-day food supply at any given time. So, you know, <laughs> things like that have made people really investigate growing in Alaska and what's possible. And frankly, with climate change, with a warmer climate, more things can grow here now, can thrive. You know, we don't have a like a large variety of trees. <laughs> or a large variety of vegetables that can grow. But I think that's changing because people want it to change and see the need for some self-reliance. Well, okay. So climate change, I, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I agree it's happening. I'm all for it. I do everything in my power to do whatever I can, but like, it seems like your region would be affected again, much stronger on it than let's say New York city. Well, actually, no, they're getting a lot of like hurricanes hitting them. But anyways, but so like how how is climate change affecting, you know, all aspects of life up there, but not, but also then also sort of included into the, the arts and culture of the, the region as well? Deeply. I think places in the Arctic felt climate change long before the rest of the country began or the world began adapting earlier understanding it earlier, having more complex conversations earlier before it became this incredibly political polarized conversation. There was just recognition things are changing. It affected smaller indigenous communities further north first. There were decades long conversations about the need to relocate entire villages that were seeing coastal erosion, changes in animal behaviors, polar bears coming to town more because the sea ice wasn't as robust, really interesting animal adaptations, grizzly bears mating with polar bears because grizzly bears were able to move further south and polar bears 
Uh, polar bears further south, grizzly bears further north. So that's an aside. New animal species. I mean, you just can't really ignore these things. So, and then, you know, in places like Anchorage, our weather's just started changing dramatically. Everything we knew was a little bit different and warmer summers, we don't have air conditioning. So feeling the heat, forest fires affecting every community. We have one road north and one road south out of Anchorage. They're the When there's a fire, either direction, you start to understand that you're kind of trapped. <laughs> there's no way out or it's a like two-day drive to Canada. <laughs> this is an incredibly vast wilderness, a lot of different eco zones. In Alaska, we have temperate rainforests, we have desert regions, we <laughs> we have Arctic regions. So it affects every place differently. But I would say what feels different to us is that it's not episodic. It's all the time. I mean, we can think about it daily. So while the rest of the US can talk about storm events, and these are incredibly devastating events. And in Alaska, it's more daily. It's less about a hurricane and more about people can't get heat. The energy costs are high. We need to look at alternatives for the ways we live. It's just, it's a very embedded conversation into our life ways. Wow. Okay. That seems very political at this point. Let's stay away from that. This is an arts podcast. Well, I will say on the art side, one thing that has been happening over the last decade is something that happens in Alaska a lot, which is that curiosity seekers come. And I think you see this in places like Iceland and Greenland and parts of Scandinavia, too, and Canada, people going to see the polar bears. There's this romanticism about our place. There always has been stereotypes of our place. When you people talk about climate change, it's typically about the melting ice sheets. So there's this vision of this white, unpopulated place. No humans could possibly be impacted. There are no cities in that stereotype. And so people would come to see it and to market and document and post it on Instagram. And artists too started, you know, it became a little bit of a bandwagon thing that, again, you're going to come to this place, you're going to tell a story of good and evil, do a project for two weeks, leave, take the stories of the people here with you. So as an art institution, partly as an art institution, I became very interested in the work of contemporary artists and how could we get them to have, if they're coming from somewhere else, how could we ask for a deeper conversation? So we had a residency program where we said, you're in residence for a year or more, that it needed to be in conversation with the people here, that something needed to be left behind, that we weren't going to fund any more black and white statements that are really extractive of local stories. So, you know, trying to change the way artists work here. It is intriguing. I still love being a tourist in the Arctic and like going to these places that are not like anything else I would see in another place. And I'm you know, in love with the people of the Arctic for the way they hold conversations and are key to all of the ways we think about the future. So I'm as guilty as anyone of Arctic tourism in my own way. But, you know, I think as an Alaskan museum, we have this commitment we need to make to artists, but also the broader community to make sure that the work that gets done here is respectful of all of the people that hold all of the knowledge. You mentioned earlier about uh, the importing of history was something that was sort of basically, well, not appreciated because it has sort of no relevance to your daily lives there in Alaska. So what's, what are you doing these days to, like, you talked about a residency program, and I've even seen some of the exhibitions you have where, like, contemporary artists are coming there and doing, like, I saw a, a exhibition of wet plate collodion images of Denali Park. So things like this that are sort of using traditional mediums in contemporary ways about the that specific location. So are you primarily basing your future programming more on uh, you know things less imported and le- and more integrated into your community? Yes, I mean I think there's still <laughs> you know I don't think we can be exceptionalists and think that we are the only ones have facing these issues or that our place is so distinct that there's nothing else we should talk about, that really we need to talk about our place and the issues that people face here in a global context. So yes, we're very local, but also 
you know, we share a lot of things with people around the Arctic and eight different other international countries. So a lot of our partners are in those northern regions across international borders, including Russia and Canada. And we work a lot with folks in Norway. So there's an exchange of artists that happens there because you don't have to start from zero. People already understand the place and the issues and the climate. And you can start from 100 and move from there, which is kind of lovely. So yeah, I think, you know, it's, I used to think, why do we not talk about our place in the world when it's the most interesting thing about us? Like, you know, we're not in Iowa. We're not an anywhere, everywhere kind of place that what people... Okay, wait, Iowa is the place that you thought of as like a great place with culture? No, I thought of it, sorry, I thought of it as kind of generic. I'm sorry, Iowa. It's okay. I went to the University of Iowa. Trust me, not a cultural mecca, but go on. So, you know, why should we try to act like San Francisco or New York City? Because what people want us to be is Alaskan. And so, you know, I think we need to figure out what that means and what it means in a global context, not just a local context. So, yeah, we produce most of our own exhibitions. We now export our exhibitions instead of import them. We work with communities to try and understand the issues that are pressing on the place and talk about those, however difficult or challenging those things might be. We think a museum has a responsibility to help people think and imagine a future which has not always been the role for museums. And we think our enormous facilities have other roles to play and our our enormous collections should really be about spurring conversations, not just be about hiding things and keeping them safe. You are the keepers. You are the, the attic of the, of the Alaskan region, just like the Smithsonian is what America's attic or something like that. Yeah. You know, people don't see attics as that relevant today, so... I think there's a rethink happening, yeah. I love addicts. I love them. But I like antiquing and thrift stores as well. So yeah, anyways. But okay, so how do you come up with your programming? So like if you're sitting down and you're thinking about, okay, the next couple of years, what this, do you try to put up exhibitions that are a mix of contemporary and historical? Do you try to like hit all the different uh, sort of cultural regions kind of thing? Like, you know, different tribes and different, um, I'm not even sure how else to differentiate. Is it tribes? Is that a right word? Some are, some are tribes, some are, some are not. Okay. <laughs> I'm getting all the vernacular wrong. It's fine. I think that advantage and maybe what's scary about a museum like ours is that we're very close to community. So if we do something wrong, we will hear about it instantly. We, you know, we have this close relationship with communities. We're not separate from it. We're not, we don't have 28 marble stairs leading to our entrance. We, (laughs) 28, is that even a lot of stairs? I don't know. (laughs) I love marble stairs leading up to an entrance. Yeah. We don't have any stairs leading to our entrance. But I hate those long stairs, the horse stairs, the the pacing of stepping up them is all wrong. But Yeah, super confusing. I, I've dented my shins many times. I hate those. Yeah. It's not a good way to start. But anyway, we're held accountable in a different way by our community, I think. Because we're not a gigantic institution, because as individuals, as staff members, we're part of that community and we will hear about the work we do. But also we, you know, we care about what's happening in this world and it makes no sense for us to be separate from it or pretend that we're an elite institution and whatever's happening today, it just doesn't matter. I just don't think that's the right way to act as public cultural institution that we should care about the things that artists are caring about that the people of our community are caring about so we keep our ears to the ground we talk to community members a lot we understand what's you know what the pressing issues are to me the most interesting exhibitions are the ones that have a broad enough idea that you can make these really interesting connections that people haven't made before. So like we did a camouflage exhibition. So we could talk about military history in Alaska, but we could also talk about how animals camouflage themselves in Arctic places. But we could also talk about 
artists in World War II who decorated the ships and created new patterns, or we could talk about contemporary artists in fashion who are wearing camo today and inventing new patterns. And we could talk about cybersecurity because people are trying to camouflage themselves online and hacking has a lot of camouflage in it. And so to me, you know, if you can pick a topic that you can kind of come at from 50 different directions, some local, some global, those are the best. It's super fun because you can be, you know, you can use your critical thinking and your creative mind to draw these parallels that maybe wouldn't be obvious to everyone. Those are my favorites. Do you like do how far out do you all plan a year, two years, three years? Yeah, it used to be four years. And now we've it <laughs> much more rapid because, you know, I think I'm watching after Black Lives Matter and you know, a much better understanding of the flaws of our museum systems, that people had these exhibits planned, you know, 10 years ago or five years ago that they're launching today. And you think, you know, is this really the time to be talking about post-impressionism? Probably not. So, you know, there's benefits to long-term planning, but there's also sometimes where you're like, oh, that's not just not relevant to anything. So we try to keep a lot of slots open that can just be contemporary storytelling for whatever's happening and whatever's bubbling up. Well, a lot of that has to do with funding also, because a lot of those plan those exhibitions that are 10 years in the planning, you know, take funding and finding insurance and millions of dollars to put together. I mean, how, and you don't have to answer this if you don't want to, but how is the museum funded? We have endowments, so long-term investments that produce some dollars annually that we can use for operations. We do receive some money from the city because we used to be a city agency. And when the museum became a private nonprofit, there's an agreement with the city that the collection will be held in the public trust and that the building is a city facility, which I think is a great idea. Museums should have that public obligation and not be solely private institutions. So there is support from the city to support the care for the collection and some care for the facility. And then individuals, some businesses, not a lot of corporate support, but some and private foundations are what make our project happen. So for us, that's foundations in Alaska, but many around the country and the world that care about the same issues, care about the work we're doing around climate or the care about the work we're doing with indigenous communities and that's really where, without the foundation support, we would be pretty static and not doing creative programming or pushing the boundaries of what an exhibition is. Okay, I have a totally random question. Um, I was doing research on you before we got on the podcast, and I found that, am I correct that you are the same person that wrote the books like Thought Experiments, The Art of Jonathan Keats? Yeah. How did, how did that come about? Well, I mean, I think at heart, I'm like super interested in curious people that are doing this critical thinking. And Jonathan Keats and I were at Art and Environment Conference in Nevada, hosted by the Nevada Museum of Art. I made a presentation and I talked all about domes, not all about domes, but it showed up in my presentation a lot. And <laughs> then Jonathan got up and he talked about domes. And he's an odd character. I don't think you'd mind me saying that. He is fascinating. Absolutely fascinating man. Totally fascinating. And he has this persona that he puts on when he's talking. I think it's partly persona. It's quirky. So afterwards, we, of course, said hello, dome person. <laughs> and I really see us, you know, all these interests in human flaws that really his work is about our own stupidity, forgive me, and kind of challenging our ways of thinking and all of our systems and was really thinking about the future. Like, what does this mean? And how could we change this? How could we live better? And I think at heart, he's real humanist that, you know, he's exploring these things because he feels that maybe we're not being so good to each other and to the planet. So I invited him to Alaska. He does these projects that are I think, take a week to understand. In a good way. In a good way. In a good way. But he had this project he was calling River Time, and he was really interested in how 
we can't understand climate change because it's just too big. And these, you know, thinking in terms of these eras is too giant for us. And as individuals, we just feel too small. So what if we looked at nature as this timekeeper and he had these clocks he was doing in other places that were like keeping time over 10,000 years. You could check back on them and, you know, when you were a hundred, but for us, he kind of went in opposite direction of what if we track the daily flow of rivers and created a clock that, you know, was updated constantly based on the flow of the rivers so that people were more connected to nature thought about it less in this kind of epic way and more about this is the river that runs through my backyard. What does it tell me about what's happening in the world? And, you know, Anchorage and Alaska have a lot of glacier fed rivers that are rushing more than ever before because the glaciers are melting. But then we also have, you know, more urban rivers that are shallower than they've ever been because we have more daylight and more heat. So, you know, we kind of came up with this Alaska River time that was clocking a group of rivers. Anyway, you know, maybe everybody else listening is thinking, what the hell is she talking about? But I found it super interesting. And it's, you know, way more interesting than doing the budget. He's an utterly fascinating man. I find him, I mean, he comes from the San Francisco Bay Area. I went to my grad school there. So like I, I was tertiarily aware of him, let's say, but I, unfortunately I never got to sort of experience any of his pieces in person. So unfortunate, but yeah, you know, I went to a lot of rivers and glaciers with Jonathan and I think we're friends. If he would be willing to be on the podcast, I would love to talk to him. Uh, I would be happy to introduce you both. That'd be amazing. Yes, I will do it. He could put on his little persona and everything. It'd be fabulous. There would be no short sentences. I would imagine he would be very verbose, yes. Yeah, in a good way. Absolutely. I mean, as I said, I find him very fascinating. I've known his work for years off and on, so yeah. I agree. How has COVID affected all of this? Because I think you're one of the first museum people I've had in a while, and so I'm sort of interested. So like, how has COVID affected you, let's say for better or for worse, because there potentially are some positive outcomes, I think. Plenty. You know, I remember I was in Los Angeles and started fielding a bunch of calls about COVID getting worse. And this city, someone from the mayor's office called me and said, you know, we're thinking about shutting down the city. It's totally up to you whether you want to close the museum or not. But, you know, just heads up, we think this is getting bad enough. Well, wait, how bad did Anchorage get any sort of COVID issues? Did, was, it, was it? You know, we're worse now than we've ever been. So I'll, that story can come later. You know, we were not as bad as New York and in a way had an advantage that we were sort of ge geographically separated from everyone. Being isolated has its, its advantages sometimes its advantages for sure. But so I remember changing my flight and just heading home. And I thought I'm not going to close my institution without being there and walking through this. And what does this look like? And of course, at the time thinking this is for a week. Remember those naive times when we thought this would all just blow over? I know. It's really cute. And then, you know, rapidly going to figuring out what a remote workforce looks like and, you know, checking in with everybody and figuring out what checking in with everybody means. And I have children, so also figuring out what working from home meant for me personally. Um, and we were closed for five months of 2020 and then 2021, you know, a real slow start, just open a couple days a week to see what that looks like reopened pretty fully by the end of May and thought we were in a new era like everyone else. But it came back with a vengeance with the Delta variant. And right now, we are without mask mandates, without really any behavioral change whatsoever, and really suffering. I mean, I read something yesterday that they said if Alaska was a country, we'd be the second worst in the world. If you consider our COVID rate per capita, our population is quite small, so our per capita rate can get high very quickly. But it's a mess right now. It does affect everything we do. I felt like I could contract myself out as a professional counselor because I feel like it's a skill set I've developed. 
And, you know, it's a remarkable letting go. You just let go of planning. You let go of thinking everything's catastrophic. You just let go. Like whatever you can make happen needs to be okay and enough. I work with a lot of really creative, brilliant, lovely (laughs) people. And, you know, they didn't quit and they went to work trying to figure out other ways we deliver content. And, you know, we get to work with artists and performers and writers and lucky enough to work with a community of people that just knows how to be creative no matter what's happening. So I felt super grateful for all of those things. And frankly, we went outdoors. We just stopped thinking about indoor programming and did programs in the woods and in the mountains and put murals on buildings and just, you know, thought in ways we like to think anyway, which is, you know, that the world we should be talking about regardless. And since all of Anchorage went outside and went hiking for the last year and a half, those, those are good places to be having conversations. Well, and did you do any sort of like virtual exhibitions and anything like that? Any of these newer technologies? Oh, totally. Yeah. I mean, we did the, you know, Anchorage Museum from Home, like became kind of ubiquitous in museums around the country. We worked a lot with teachers who were struggling to put content online and even figure out what the hell that looked like. Worked with parents to try and figure out what virtual camps could look like. Did virtual schools school visits, virtual exhibits with artists, virtual concerts, virtual conference. And, you know, there's this love-hate relationship with, we did this workshop that was a repair workshop that normally would have had 30 people locally that are thinking about, you know, how do we sustain our environment by extending the life of objects. And we did it virtually and we had people from Brazil and Iceland and Europe. And you think, well, that's kind of a cool Thing that can happen with a virtual program is just not those kinds of barriers to participation. So, and then, you know, this is super corny, but I think we just all started having deeper conversations with each other. Like they were, we were just better at dealing with each other as humans because of all the letting go of what we thought we had to ter- talk about professionally. It was more like, what do we care about? And let's just do that. And whatever that looks like, it's going to be okay. And yeah, it's kind of a healthy place to be. You know, we sort of took care of each other. Like, oh, you feel like crap today? Like, why don't you just take the day off? It, it is so much easier to take a day off when you don't have to go to an office, I do have to admit. Yeah, it's really transformative. I mean, that's, you know, everybody's used all the words. I don't have any new ones, but I think it's been transformative for us as humans, but also as an organization's. Well, and hopefully everything will get back to some semblance of normalcy in the near future. I mean, I did feel some grief personally. I'm an introvert. I sort of adored working at home with my dog and getting stuff done. And, you know, the chit-chatting in a day, you realize this is like about five and a half hours worth of time. And (laughs) if you're lucky. You know, I like being hyperproductive and I felt like I could be, but also you have to, you know, watch yourself to make sure you, you're not taking advantage of that too much and that you still make sure you're a public target. <laughs> Come out of the weeds enough. Yeah. Do you feel like a public target? Uh, sure. I mean, I should be. I think that's part of my job. Yeah. To a certain extent. Yeah. You're the lightning rod at least. Yeah, that's part of it. Yeah. You know, you have to be present to make sure that you're the one it comes at rather than all the people you're here to protect. Indeed. All right. The residency program, do you know a lot about the residency program? Could I ask you questions about it? Yeah. No, I started it as a curator. Yeah. Okay. I didn't know if it was like somebody else's purview and you'd say like, oh, this other person knows more. Okay. So you do know a lot about it. I love residency programs. Please tell us more about your residency program. Sure. We have a couple. We started a new one that's a virtual artist residency, which we thought would be diminished, but instead it's super cool. So it works with young and emerging artists and they talk about their process online and show their process. So it's much more about not what do I make, but it's more about why do I make it and how do I make it? And that's been super interesting. And we've put tools in that. So really kind of the social media residency. But, you know, I mentioned this long-term residency we had that is called Polar Lab, where we are really interested in artists as researchers. And since I've known artists my whole life, one of the things I find so like 
really awesome and tremendous about hanging out with them is their curiosity about their world, their critical thinking that they've read everything that, you know, they'll just do the ultimate deep dive into whatever subject they're doing and they want to meet scientists and they'll read novels and science books and science books. Is that even a term? That sounds stupid. Science books. Sure. Scientific book, maybe. No. Thank you. Yeah. Scientific journals. We'll just go with that. Journals. That's a very, very intellectual sounding. Yes. Thank you. But they also will immerse themselves in environment and take more risks than I think some of us allow ourselves to take and, you know, just go all in. And so I wanted to like find artists that go ahead. Okay. Yeah. No, quickly, I wanted to mention I'm looking through the Anchorage Museum website. I don't see anything about the residency program. Yeah. It's being revamped right now. You'll see it in about a week. Okay, great. So by the time this comes out, everything will be there. Because I'm, li- I'm like, I don't see anything. It was getting a little dated. We wanted to refresh it. By the time this episode gets published, it'll be there. So that's fine because it's not there. So I can't ask any questions. I don't have no idea what it says. So anyways, continue. You know, we started looking for those artists that really have research at the heart of what they do, that these are not short episodic projects for them. They're really spending years examining something and creating not just one sculpture or artwork or installation or public practice moment. They're doing many. So partly it was understanding the way these artists work and supporting that. But also, as I mentioned, wanting whatever we were supporting financially and with our own capacity to add value back to our place and the people that are involved in the project, which I think takes a long time. It takes a lot of conversations and it takes relationship building. And so really, I think that's what we were, that's what the residency program came about is, can you change conversations by having, you know, asking artists to be in deeper ones with place and people? Okay. But I want to know the nuts and bolts of it also. Is it funded? Is it like, so what's the, are are there resources? So like, do you have like kilns and, and, and workshops? Yes. I mean, I remember when I was chief curator talking to a funder because I'd put in a proposal saying we wanted to do these residencies, but we weren't going to describe the products that would grow out of them. And I remember writing and that's what's, you know, basically that's what's great about it because it's, you know, it's organically going to grow out of these conversations and this funder calling me and saying, so you're asking me to support a project that you don't really know what it is. And I said, yes. And they did. Love those funders. I love those funders too. It's amazing that take risks with you. And you just say, that's the value is that we want it to mean something at the end. And we, so, you know, if we prescribe what that is now, why even bother having the conversations? Well, I'm so tired of all the funding opportunities that have so many freaking strings attached to them. Like you have to be sure to include all these different kinds of people or you need to be able to quantify the whatever, the footfall, the blah, blah, like so many strings attached. Like it is an amazing luxury to find any sort of source of funding that just says, oh, you have a great idea. I like your idea. Let's do with it. Yeah. Or we trust you to, you know, take these dollars and make something good happen. Like, that's amazing. So rare. You know, okay, we see your track record. We believe you will support artists and artists will create something that has meaning like that. It's lovely when that's enough. So early on, we had these very generous funders who, one who had never really even funded programs that usually only funded capital costs and just, you know, okay, go for it. And, you know, funding can make anything happen because otherwise it's just an idea and you can't really get people behind it. So just to be clear, when you say early on, what what year was this that this all got started? And this was probably 2013, like the launching the Polar Lab residencies started with some, you know, one core funder. But then other people came on board because the products that were coming out of it were going around the world. They were creating conversations. The artists were getting attention. Our place is interesting. We created exhibitions occasionally. And like, so five years later, we took all of the artists who had been in this program and had an exhibition showing the work and then sent that around internationally. And so then there were workshops in those places and conversations in those places. And, you know, those things build on each other. And sometimes this, the artist would 
you know, do another iteration of the work at some New York gallery or wherever. So you felt like, you know, this wasn't just some local project. This really was broader conversation. And I thought that was exciting, but also, you know, you have to find artists that are willing to make that investment themselves. It's a luxury. They can't always afford that. We did provide a stipend and we'd provide travel funds not always to Alaska. If they said, you know, I've been to Alaska now, I not want to know, I want to go talk to scientists in Norway, then we would say, okay, if that's where your project's taking you, then go there. But can you present at this conference in this other place? So, you know, it grew tendrils. It's actually how I met Andreas. Who recommended you for this? Yes. Yeah. And then the artists would meet each other and this network started to grow so with some seed funding and, you know, artists were not making a living working with our program, but we were hopefully supporting the body of work that they cared about and providing some ability and some validity to say, keep going, this has value. And hopefully then they could leverage our investment with other grantors. And or sometimes the projects were really quiet here. Like people would say, what do you mean they're in residence there? Because they're just doing their research. So sometimes it would take two or three years for an exhibition or a performance or a project or a book or something to grow out of that. And so, you know, that takes some justification as well. Like this may seem invisible, but this is one of our best projects. Okay. But so like I'm a practicing artist. And so if I'm sitting here thinking like, oh my God, that sounds like an amazing opportunity. What, what kind of like proposals could I possibly like I have no direct association to Alaska so like how could I go you know what there's this amazing project that I want to do and I'm going to have this romantic idea in my head which is totally not the reality but like what constitutes like a good relevant idea without having ever been there before I mean, partly, sometimes we'd get proposals where they said, here's a sculpture, I made one here, and I want to make one there. And we'd say, this probably isn't the right program for you. You know, we're going to ask other things of you, and that may not be a comfortable space. Or sometimes you get, you know, and we don't like to put a big proposal process in place. We don't even have the capacity to review it at that level. And so, you know, we just say, bring us your ideas and tell us what it is, and then we'll have a conversation. And I think that's a better place, because if it is just completely romanticized, then we will say, you know, well, here's the values we try to express through our institution. Here's our commitments to the people of this place. And, you know, if you want to continue to think about that idea relative to those things, then, you know, work on the proposal. And, you know, we don't like closing doors, because... A lot of great things can come from just continuing to have a conversation about what it might be. That's really a hard place for some people who want everything to be concrete. And, you know, what do you mean? Can you give me a spreadsheet that I fill in? But I think that's then a sign that maybe they fit a different kind of residency program or something else with us rather than this one. Lovely. Yeah, I have no idea what that application process would be at this point. But yes, okay. Yeah, really, it's a pair. What do you want to do and why do you want to do it? And why are we important to helping you do it aside from dollars? You know, I mean, we're not a grantor. We are co-investing in whatever the project is. So, See, as you're talking, I'm thinking my family heritage is Finnish. So I'm like, I could do something about in Finland and I could apply for you because I'm an American citizen. So I could probably get a grant easier from you than I could from Finland. So like there's that kind of thing. But yeah, in the end, my idea would just be you're the dollars, you're the banker. And we're not a banker. We're a nonprofit. So, you know, we rely on bankers to fund these projects, which is why they need to be. We have a responsibility to make sure they're meaningful to the artists, but also a broader sense of where we are. And yeah, I totally understand. No, I mean, everybody's got a a mission statement or something that they need to somehow try to attach everything to. I mean, you can't just do anything willy nilly. I get it. I have Finnish heritage too, but really? Yeah. When I went there, I thought, oh, I can feel it. There's a bunch of quiet people who care a lot about design. This is awesome. <laughs> Is is that true? Okay, I I'm I I really want to go there. We do you know they have this amazing genealogical website that like if you know like one person in Finland, you can go all the way back to like the 500 AD. Like they have every family lineage all the way back. Like oh, that's exciting. I know two of them, so I'm gonna try that. Yeah, it's it's on a totally free website that you can just access and just like 
it's a it's astounding. We were able to track our family all the way back to like 580. Wow, nice. Yeah. Where in Finland? Shit, I don't know off the top of my head. <laughs> One of those 19 letter words. Yeah, starts with T and has a K in it. Yeah. Lots of consonants. Yes. Lots of use, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I remember that. Um, no, it was it was our, our family name was Mananen was that that went that direction. That's all I know. Nice, cool. Yeah, I've never felt that way going to a place before, where all of a sudden I felt like my whole sense made sense. Yeah, I felt kind of other in other places, like you know the things I care about and my natural aversion to people <laughs> lots of talking <laughs> uh, was okay there is that a general scandinavian thing or is that a finnish thing i have a finnish friend who says she's fluent in silence in many languages so <laughs> okay she speaks i think nine languages but she says she just likes to be quiet in all of them and so i think there is a finnish pride in that kind of not needing to be ostentatious or center of attention. You know, I think the Norwegians are known for being stoic and now I'm being totally stereotyping places, which is not my job, but yeah. I have not, I will be traveling to Iceland and Norway in the next year for the podcast. So I hope to get a better sense of those regions. Now, okay, totally random personal question. Have you ever done a sweat lodge? I've been to a sweat lodge, yeah. Have you? Mm-hmm. Are they are, so that you all do them? In Finland, actually, yeah. I love them. I love them so much. I used to do them. I studied with this Cherokee shaman, and he used to, we used to do sweat lodges, and they were absolutely magnificent. Like, I've never experienced anything quite like them. They're such a release. Like, oh, I, I, I miss them incredibly. Ugh. And that's where people have their conversations. Like, that's where you bond. Oh, I learned way more about the people I was in those lodges with than I probably ever wanted to know about them. That's the thing. Yeah, I think that's part of it. Yeah. That's where literally it all comes out. Yeah. <laughs> well, but are they are they in the ground or are they like in snow? Like how do you all do them up there? They're like shacks. Oh, you do them shacks. Okay. We we the ones we did, we would dig into the ground and then build a, a dome over top of it. Back to domes again. Build a dome over top of, of like a hole in the ground that we dug out. So I was just always interested in the different regional Yeah. I can see that being here in the winter, but I don't know enough to say. Yeah. Okay, fair enough. Yeah. Any topics that we I have not asked you about that you desire to talk about? No, totally up to you. <laughs> well, I mean like things that the like I just may not even know to ask anything about like the residency program because <laughs> like, it wasn't even on the website had no idea it wasn't there oh it's so funny thought about this morning you say this morning it is only eight in the morning to you yeah i know i do my best thinking in the shower that's <laughs> where i make the list like ooh. i know i want a whiteboard in the shower that's like waterproof do they do those yeah It'd be so much more productive because I will forget the things as I drive to work or do whatever. Yeah. I forget the things before I even get out of the shower. I'm like, <laughs> I'm like I had this idea in the shower. I can't fucking remember what it is. Yeah. It was so good. It was. It was amazing. It's horrible. I know. Whenever I don't have a piece of paper, that's when I come up with my best ideas. All right. Well, Nothing else from you? No no other topics that you... No. Was that useful? It was great. I loved it. All right. Good. It's nice to meet you. You got out what you wanted to get out? No, let's go to Finland. We'll meet there. I would gladly go to Finland. I'm I'm pretty close. So, like, it's not hard for me to get there. Yeah, it's true. That would not be hard. Yeah. No. Yeah. All right. We'll meet up in Finland and f figure out our family heritage. Yes, let's do it. I'm going to find the website. Lovely. And I'm going to connect you to Jonathan Keats. That would be amazing. And I'll find that, uh, I'll find the Finnish genealogy website. I'll send it to you, actually. Okay. Well, thank you very much for taking the time. Thank you so much. Have a good day or a good night. I hope you enjoyed our conversation and the fact that I get to ask really dumb questions to really smart people. And you learned as much from the podcast as I am, because I've learned a lot of things I've done wrong and a lot of things that I need to put more effort into for the rest of my career. 
I hope this podcast has inspired and assisted you in being more successful in your creative endeavors. If you like the podcast, we would appreciate a five-star rating and a nice comment would be greatly appreciated. I would like to thank Conceptual Citizen for writing a review and giving us a five-star rating. Thank you very much. Please tell your friends to listen and subscribe. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We are produced by 5014. The audio was edited by Jakub Czerny, and the music was created by Pete Bybee. Thanks, Pete. The Wise Fool is supported in part by an EEA grant from Iceland, Liechtenstein, and Norway in an effort to work together for a green, competitive, and inclusive Europe. We would also like to thank our partners Hunt Kastner in Prague, Czech Republic, and Kunstcentrene i Norge in Norway. Links to EEA grants and our partner organizations are available in the show notes or on our website, wisefoolpod.com. <laughs>